going to talk about one of my favorite people today, and it has to do with worship. We're going to talk about David and the key of David. There are entire books and tomes, big, long treatises written about the key of David because it's so crucial to the entire mystery of God. But I'm going to talk about a key of David that you and I can use that has everything to do with worship. And so we're going to be going there. Uh, we're going to look in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This is where Jesus is talking to one of the untouchables. He shouldn't have even been doing this. If he was a good Jew uh, in that era, and especially if he was a Pharisee, he was considered a Pharisee even though he wasn't. Because he lived a righteous life, he was considered a, a teacher of high standing. Even in his day, even though he's from a country town, they made room for him. Even in the temple, they made room for him. So uh, in John 4, 23-24, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman who is a sinful woman. She's living with, um, I think it was the seventh man in her life, and she's not married this time. So she's uh, been through the world a few times, and um, she has come to get water at a time when the other women aren't there, so she won't get beat up or ridiculed. And uh, he has this to say to her. He's speaking prophetically, and it applies to us today. I'm going to read this out of the NIV. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We're told of very few things that God the Father personally seeks on this earth. This is one of them. Verse 24, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. I want you to imagine for a minute David. Some of you see a, a shepherd boy. Some of you see a, a guy who killed Goliath. Some of you see a powerful soldier. He was all those things. But imagine David seated before the Ark of the Covenant, this was a place where God's Spirit was supposed to dwell. At times, He wasn't anywhere close to it, but always it was a hallowed place. There are places around this earth where, that are still hallowed. One of the things, if you've ever read the book, Martyred for Christ, I went to see the author uh, of that book. He was a, a pastor behind the Iron Curtain who was arrested and tortured by the KGB for... I forget now how many years he was in prison, but had, he was tortured almost every single day. They ran um, super-cooled uh, rods all the way through his body where it would burn a hole in his body and cauterize right after it just to, just to do it. And so he had holes all the way through his body. And I went through a snowstorm in Tulsa to meet with him, and he said that there are places in, in uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, throughout the Soviet Union that look like warehouses, and they used to be churches. And if you are spiritually attuned, you can walk in and you can sense and see angels there because that ground was hallowed no matter what the Soviet government did to profane the buildings. It was still holy ground to God. Well, that's the way the ark was to a high extent. Even at, though it had been taken from the Jews for, well, the Philistines took it for about seven months but it was out of Jerusalem for anywhere between 20 to 35 years by that time. And so David finally retrieved it after one failure and brought it into 
Jerusalem and built a temporary tent for it. And there is a place in the Scriptures where we're told that he is seated in front of the Ark of the Covenant talking to God. All of the Scriptures that precede that, that have to do with the Ark, tell us that is impossible. Unless you're a high priest and unless it is one day out of the year and it's your time and you're properly clothed and you prepared the right way and you have a rope around your ankle so they can pull your dead body out of the Holy of Holies because you have walked in with a sin. So only one person a year could ever do that according to the old law. And yet David is sitting there right by the ark having a conversation heart to heart with God. How in the world did he pull this off before the cross? Worship. He did it through worship. Because worship is the thing that covers. And I won't even go into That's a great teaching about how they use the smoke and the incense of prayers to cover the sins of mankind. It's an amazing teaching. And if you haven't ever studied the depths of the Old Testament, you'll never understand the depths of the New. That's just the truth. You have to wade through it to get the gold. But anyway, let me get on to this thing. It's a good question to ask how he did it, because even recently, just before that, three Philistine cities that had, after the Philistines captured the ark, and it's a story of sin and degradation in in Israel, God just punished them by showing them that the box wasn't the secret. It was the worship of the God of the box, just like here. This Bible, there are people who don't know God and don't believe He exists, but they exercise the principles in it, and they have some benefits. But there's a big difference between worshiping the book of God and worshiping the God of the book. If you know the God of the book, then the book comes alive. Otherwise, it's just letters on a page. Anyway, so three Philistine cities, every time a city agreed to have this holy thing that has been set aside for God, They had it come into that city. The same plagues that fell on Egypt fell on that city. And at each successive city, three of them, it got worse. Every city that said, we'll take this this thing, because they they kept this Ark of the Covenant to celebrate the fact that their God, Dagon, was more powerful than the God of the Jews, Jehovah. But every time they did it, bad things happened to the city. And finally, they took it to the capital city, and bad things were happening. They thought, we'll put it in the, the place of our God. And they took it into the temple of Dagon. And the first night, they come in in the morning, and, and their idol of Dagon is on the ground on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. They said, oh, that's weird. That's an accident. And they put it back up. The next night, they come in, and Dagon's on his face again. But this time, his head's broken off, and his hands are broken off. How does that happen? It's gone beyond coincidence. And that's when it dawned on them, they better get rid of this thing because Dagon is not the head god here. So then they return it to the Jews, and it takes anywhere from, there's two different versions, anywhere from 20 to 35 years, and they finally get it. David gets this back. He's sitting there. Uh, Just previous to that, 70 Israelite men, when they first brought this thing back to the Jews, 70 men of Israel, remember by this time God was a myth, kind of like in America. People go to church, hey, we grew up Christian, go to church, get our, you know, our fire card just in case they're right about this thing. But God's a myth. He was a myth to them too. So they were curious. They opened the lid, looked inside the ark, 70 men struck dead instantly. 
what they had done is they had come face to face with a holy God without the grace of God. Anyway, uh, it goes on, and then even in the first attempt of David trying to return the ark to Jerusalem, there's a story of a Levite, a guy who is authorized to service the, the presence of God, and yet his name was Uzzah, and he reached out and tried to steady the ark because they were trying to transport it. They didn't bother to look to Scriptures. Again, they had, that by this time, they're a generation who did not know God. They did not know His ways. So they tried to move God's presence man's way. Anytime a church tries to move God's presence with man's manipulation and man's techniques, it's not going to work. Something's going to go wrong. Somebody's going to get hurt. I'm not saying God will strike them down, but just, I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where because of my boneheadedness, God just lifted His grace and backed away and let me have what I wanted. Worst possible thing could happen. Believe me, you don't want it to get to that point. Some of you parents have done that with your kids. Even there, it's usually nasty. It's not pleasant. So anyway, that's kind of what happened here. So David bypassed all that. There is something about David's life, God's presence in his life from the time he was a little kid on, transformed things and people. And there's a long story about his life. I just love the, the life of David. You can, if you studied David and didn't look at the Gospels, you'd be a powerful Christian because the Lord drew so much from David. There's an odd relationship with God that transformed him too. It took this uh, shepherd boy and transformed him into a bear killer, a lion killer, a giant killer, and a king. And it took him beyond that. Made him prophet, priest, and king. And it's impossible. You can't be all three, supposedly, especially in the Old Testament. He didn't come from a uh, high priestly family at all. What he came from is he, he was a worshiper. In fact, you know, one of the greatest stories of David is where his ancestry came from. He is a picture of grace. You know what grace is? God, grace is God's enablement. It's his ability stepping into our weakness. That's why we love the name Grace Church. Because we know apart from him we can't do a thing. We just can't. We can, we can pretend and we can play the games, but unless God is involved bringing what He alone brings into a situation, we can't do this. We can't pull it off. David had a heart after God, one of the intriguing phrases in the Scriptures. And that phrase was quoted in the New Testament. It's not just in the Old Testament. God said, I found a man who has a heart after me. We need to discover the secrets of David. And I'm, I'm, all this was just a prelude I want to get to. I'm just trying to get past this. We've been talking about the fact that whatever you worship, you elevate. And also, you are elevated when you do that. If you elevate the Lord, He elevates you. It's one of those odd things. That years ago, I wrote a song called Sing a Song of Praise. And it was just while I was waiting for a bunch of is it ORU, Oral Roberts University, and I was, I was a chaplain, and they had asked me to be the chaplain over all the guys that uh, had gotten kicked out of school twice, and this was their last chance. I felt like I was the prison chaplain that year, 
interesting guys. I won't go into it. Some of you have heard the stories before. But while waiting for them to show up in their jock straps, and some with not that or whatever they showed up in, they usually wanted to see if they could get me crack up in the middle of devotions, you know. Started writing a song called Sing a Song of Praise and Let Your Hearts Be Raised. And the point was, you don't wait till you feel it. You begin to worship God and speak out of your heart and let him lift you, and he will. So let me get into this. David was spiritually prepared for his future in what I call the womb of worship. Guys, kind of hang with me. This may sound feminine, but you know what? You need it. David was prepared for his future in the womb of worship. In other words, he was being formed. He wasn't fully formed yet. That's true for all of us. You guys do not know what tomorrow brings. Some of you are still searching for why you were born. And I don't care what age you are. There are a lot of people that I could name that discovered what they were born for in their 60s. One of them was Smith Wigglesworth. It was at the age of 63 that his life was transformed. I mean, he waited a long time. And up to then, he was a plumber. How many of you guys know plumbers? Plumbers are hard workers. Plumbers get frustrated. Plumbers are constantly getting their fingers caught, jammed, torn, ripped, and messed up. So they speak a lot of French. And evidently, uh, from the books and biographies, Smith Wigglesworth could speak French so loudly that people four and five stories below the tenements in London could hear hear him uh, not bless God. He was a rough rough character who was married to a very godly woman, and she finally won him over by loving him into the kingdom. But when he came, he came with everything he had, body, soul, and spirit. And the years remaining in his life, some of you could probably tell me how old he was when he died. He died preaching. Uh, He transformed the world. God took him late in age. So my point is, if you're one of those people in the room that's trying to figure out what you were born for, it's not too late. If you're breathing, it's not too late. God is the master redeemer. I don't care how many times you have messed up. He has this way of causing all things to work together for good according to his purposes in your life, not just mine. So David, one reason I love this guy so much is he started small. He wasn't born with a magic mark, and uh, everybody made room for him. This guy was nobody. He's in the smallest tribe of Israel. He was the youngest. He was the eighth son of his father. Scriptures imply strongly, David implies strongly in the Psalms. He says, in iniquity did my mother bear me. It he wasn't talking about the theological concept of original sin. That's not what he was talking about there. There's a strong implication that he was being literal, that he was born in iniquity, in other words, in rebellion, very possibly born out of wedlock. Who knows what the cause is? There's lots of speculation. All we know is he was forgotten. The Scriptures tell us that his father, Jesse, was known in the, in the villages. He was like the head elder in his village or the chief of a clan. But the Scriptures tell us that he is already known as an old elderly man at the time that David was born. 
He didn't have time or energy for his son. He barely knew him. So when we first find David, he is tending sheep. We thought, oh, isn't that nice? David the shepherd, he wrote, he wrote the psalm about this good shepherd. You guys, in that day, his, his father was fairly wealthy. Uh, you don't send your children to tend sheep. To this day, in the Far East, in the Middle East, sheep tending is the bottom of the barrel. That's what you hire people to do at minimum wage to get it out of your hair. If you send somebody in your family to do it, it's to punish them or it's because they don't count. It's cheaper than hiring somebody. That's David. David is on the backside of nowhere, tending sheep, forgotten. There's nowhere close to being in line to receive his father's wealth. That would go to the oldest son. So David was forgotten. He was a nobody. There's a chance that there was a history of, that tainted and tinged his whole thing. So this guy started from the bottom. That should encourage you and me. Somehow we always think that the things in the Scriptures apply to people who are special. They're smarter than me. They're better than me. They were, they were better educated than me. Guys, stop that. The Word of God is for you. The Spirit of God is for you. The call of God is on your life. According to Ephesians 4, the, the fivefold, we look up to them, we should, but they're here just to equip. They're here just to build a platform for you to launch from. The work of the ministry happens in the body. And we said it many times, this church is filled with ministers with a few equippers. All right? I just I need to get that here because it fits into this whole thing that I'm trying to cover. The closest thing we have for you to understand emotionally and mentally perhaps, or especially with my mental capacity at times, is Cinderella. David was the Cinderella of his day, the forgotten one, you know, the stepchild, so to speak, way down on the list. He didn't matter he, was, he so not mattered that when the prophet came that everyone feared. They were afraid that, oh, he's going to come and you know, call fire down in our village. They feared Samuel. And Samuel comes and commands Jesse, the old elder, bring all of your sons to me. God says I'm to anoint them. He did not. He disobeyed and did not even bother to bring up David. That tells you how much David mattered. So if you're feeling kind of low today, hey, you're in good company. You and David would get along just fine. Cinderella David, that was him. This is the one that God chose. God told him elsewhere in another scripture, he said, I found you tagging along behind the sheep, and I chose you. You need to realize that you sitting here this morning is not an accident. God chose you as surely as he chose me or anybody else on this planet. When Jesus died on the cross... He had you in mind as well as he had me or anybody else. There is a high call in your life. There's a key that you have and possess in your, your lifetime that he wants to unlock other people's lives with. Worship is hard in here. So he was despised, is misunderstood by family, but he is found by God. You need to realize no matter what your history, no matter how many screw-ups you have, you've been found by God and he chooses you. I don't care what the odds are. God seems to love high odds. Oh, yeah, it's a thousand to one. He'll make it this time. He's a loser. He's going to be a perpetual loser. He's a loser. Might as well just, you know, that kind of stuff. 
God will say, it seems like he perks up. The worse they are. How many of you guys are familiar with the play, play Pygmalion? I forget the other name for it. Uh, My Fair Lady. Yeah. Two high, high, mighty, fancy guys that are having a debate, you know, about whether environment or training is most important in what makes people, you know. And so they make a bet. And they go looking for the biggest possible loser they can find. And they pick a woman off the gutter and teach her to be a classy lady of the highest levels of society. And uh, God loves impossible, impossible people. That's why I like our church so much. There seems to be a lot of you guys in here. I feel right at home. And uh, worship is something God's given us. It's one of our callings. Let's get into it. We just read something. I'm going to read it again. Yet a time is coming. This is John 4, 23, 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Vines, um, one of the classic study uh, works that's available to anybody, even online, is Vines, uh, Expository Dictionary, and it, uh, it covers this word truth. And he quotes another scholar named Kramer, and he says, Truth signifies the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested, veritable essence of the matter. Example, it's the difference between worshiping God to preserve your lifestyle and your position and worshiping God because you love Him. You guys know that sometimes you can build a, as a preacher or whatever, you can build a ministry that's so big you have to keep plugging quarters into the machine. You need to keep feeding the monster. You need to keep coming up with a new greatest program to keep pumping in so their tires will keep coming, keep your TV shoot going. In other words, you start feeding the monster instead of worshiping the Lord. In that case, most of your prayers are to get answers for your problems instead of worshiping Him because you love Him. When we're told in the book of Revelation, when Jesus warns an entire church, I have this against you, you've done these good things, you've been faithful, you've represented me, you've done the works of the ministry, but I have this one thing against you, you have left your first love. That's feeding the monster versus loving the Lord, loving Jesus, spending time with Him. We are called to worship above all. Elevation works two ways. Again, what you worship, you elevate. When you worship the Master, you elevate Him in your life, your thinking, your problem-solving, your planning, your value system, everything about Him. If you elevate Him... He will also elevate you. And I want to talk practical ways to do that. We just, we, sometimes with worship, we just get weird. A friend of mine, a great scholar named Dr. Ron Cottle, has said, and he goes into great lengths. This is one of those things that really goes off. I'm hoping to write a book on it now. But it's called Works Without Worship Are of Little Value Without God. All the stuff we do, all the church services we attend, even the prayer meetings we go to, or even the worship times, if we're doing it to maintain our status, 
if we're doing it for any other reason than just to worship Him, we need to surge it. There are times, many times, we're actually commanded in Scriptures to bring our prayers and petitions to Him. It's okay to ask God to meet needs. That's fine. It's a privilege. He loves doing it. But what He loves more than anything else is the fact that before He was famous, a little forgotten shepherd boy worshipped Him because He loved Him. That was the secret of David. That was the key of David. David somehow, without training, without seminary, without church services that were where I mean, without anything, he, this little guy was a forgotten kid. And somehow, out there with the sheep, this kid discovered the secret of relationship with God. And this was an invisible God that most of his nation had forgotten. There was one prophet in the land, and they all had to go to Samuel to even hear from God. Things were tough at that time. Talking about living in a, in a country that had completely lost its identity in the spirit, we should be able to relate with David that way too. Our country has lost its moorings. How are we going to get it back? I maintain one way is for you and I to be real. David had a close relationship with God every day. And there's some simple, practical secrets for some of you guys. You're going to be just nodding. Yeah, I knew that. I have that t-shirt. I practice that every day. Good. But if you don't, I want to encourage you to start practicing this. Um, David made God the center of his life. Got to get past the cliche that it sounds like. He really did. Whatever happened in his life, it showed up in his prayer journal, in his worship songs. We have his prayer journal with us. Several of the ancient authorities say that David wrote as many as 3,400 psalms. Psalms, the Hebrew word for psalms is tehillim. It's plural, and it means praises. That's what the psalms are to the Jews, praises. Even though there's all kinds of psalms, there's laments, and uh, the Orthodox Jewish believers believe that David wrote all of the psalms. Um, some scholars don't think he wrote any. Of course, they don't believe God's God either, a number of those. But there are some folks that um, have really studied this and do believe that David wrote a number. He wrote a number of them, and he influenced people by his example to enter into relationship, and they wrote under the anointing as well, such as Asaph and a number of other priests who worshiped God in music and in constant worship. So there's power in these psalms. But he took everything to his number one confidant and friend. And it shows up. And I'm just, when Saul, King Saul, hunted him like a dog, it shows up in his psalms. When, um, his own lie caused the execution of the priests of Nob and all of their family members. He just simply withheld a simple fact. He didn't tell a lie. He simply didn't tell all the truth. And it caused the death of an entire priestly community that gave him shelter. He, that shows up in his psalms, his guilt over that and asking forgiveness. Um, the day he played crazy to escape the Philistines, it shows up in his psalms. This guy put everything in his life, big, small, Scary, whatever it was, it showed up in his psalms. When his eldest son tried to kill him, it showed up in his psalms. 
Now, Pastor Giuliano wanted to make sure I got this in to you because it's, it's impactful for her. It's important to me, too. We've run into this a lot, and maybe you have, too. As, as pastors, it always amazes us that when people make a mistake in their lives or they sin, they run away from God. They stay away from church, not that church is the cure for everything, but it's one of the anchor stones God gave us for our lives. But when things go wrong, we isolate, we pull back, we don't go to church anymore, we don't call our Christian friends, we don't share it with our family members. It's just like you're hurt, you're like a, a, a dog that whimpers and goes in the corner and pulls all your, your tail in, you pull your paws in, and you just hang. David ran to God with everything. God was his best friend, maybe because he started alone. I don't know. But whatever David did in the beginning as a young kid, he continued it. Whenever he veered, whenever he lost his way, that's when he got into sin. Whenever he got distracted, that's when he got in trouble with Bathsheba. Even with his mistakes, he had a habit of taking everything he had to the Lord daily. He didn't wait to the big time. Well, next month when I go to church, kind of like, and I'll take the bath and I'll go to church once a month, then I'll go, I'll tell God about all this stuff. No. He started small. I want to give you the keys to elevation. Number one, practice continual thanksgiving and praise. Worship as you go. Do it through your waking hours. It honors God. It conducts spiritual maintenance. The closest thing we have to it, okay, wait for it. Wax on, wax off. How many you know what I'm talking about? Karate kid. He had to fool this kid. This kid knew everything. Thought he already knew karate. He didn't. So he tells him to wax his car. But he gives him a very specific way to do it. And he shows him another way to do it. And then they did the new movie and used a different technique. But the whole point is, he taught him how to do everyday movements. He didn't realize he was learning karate. If you begin to worship God every day, I, I try to teach people spiritual breathing. You, even the Hebrew words for breathing have to do with God. Anytime in Hebrew where God talks about his spirit, he goes, breath the holy. I'll teach you a little Hebrew here. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Breath the holy is how the Holy Spirit is spoken in, he in Hebrew. Of course, they, they change the sentence structure and that sort of thing. Ruach HaKadosh. And Ruach means breath. Anytime the Spirit shows up in Hebrew, you'll see Ruach HaKadosh. Breath, Ha is always the. Ruach HaKadosh. If we can teach you spiritual breathing, I learned this as a kid. I don't know how. Maybe I watched my dad, and my dad's 90 now. He still walks in the Spirit every day. He's not perfect. He's just a guy, but he loves God. And he's prayed and practiced prayer all of his life since he became a Christian. And uh, I learned how to just thank God constantly. And wherever I've gotten off base is when I have stopped doing it. And it's happened. I went through the heart situation. Everything was kind of messed up for me. And it took me, I'm just now getting back to where I should be in prayer. Because it played with my head and it played physically and the whole thing. 
Learn to thank God for the small things constantly. I just, I found that almost every breath I found something I could say. If I was driving in the car, the thing that's dangerous about it is if you start practicing this, God will visit you and catch you by surprise. You'll be driving your car, minding your own business, you know, saying, thank you, Lord. Man, thank you. Thank, I'm glad that jerk didn't hit me. Sorry, Lord. And I just have a conversation with him, you know? And the minute I've been doing that, and sometimes he will just, bam. His spirit will fall on me, and I have to pull over to the side because I can't even see. I'm laughing. I'm crying. I think I'm nuts or calling the cops. Who knows? This guy's having a breakdown over here. No, I'm not. I'm having a visitation of the Holy Spirit. He's filling the car, and then it's over, and I wipe my eyes and say, man, and I go on and do my thing. If you begin to practice breathing the Holy Spirit, every don't, if someone's with you, please don't freak them out. The guy's schizoid. He's weird. He needs medication. Don't do that. Don't freak them out. They're already having a hard enough time. That we want them to know that God is good, not that he runs a loony bin, okay? So, but, but practice this. Okay, practice continual praise. Develop a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. In fact, as you do this, remember thankfulness is the first thing that we do. That's the first level. Enters gates with thanksgiving. Enters courts with praise. But there's more to that than just sounds. It actually is a good progression. We always should breathe thanks. These are keys even how to pray continually without ceasing as we're commanded to in Scripture. And I do believe in praying in tongues. That's one of the great gifts God gave us. You can pray that and totally disengage your brain at times when you need to concentrate and do your work. Do it quietly again. Do not freak out the office, please. I already think we're weird enough as it is. You can pray silently, but develop a heart of gratitude. It will become a permanent fixture of your life. I believe this is one of the great secrets in David. He, he practiced thanksgiving. He wasn't perfect. He was not sin-free. But somehow he finished well enough that unlike all of us, God said, this is David, a man I have found who has a heart after God. There's something about him. He had a, a heart of gratitude. Number three, build this life of continual thanksgiving from little to great. This is important. I'm trying to make this really practical for you guys. Don't, don't say, well, I'm going to go to that conference, and they're going to teach me how to be a walking, talking psalmist before the Lord. Do what David did and start now. Start small. Be thankful for the little things. Teach yourself to breathe and to walk with Him. Practice the presence of God. You will find yourself getting better at it. I'm not, you're not going to be learning a fake thing, a technique. What you'll be doing is training your spirit. You will discover that your spirit is fully alive at all times, even when your body's nearly dead. You'll feel half brain dead because your brain's exhausted, but you'll find your spirit will never flag. Your spirit will be strong at all times. I'm trying to teach you how to walk in the spirit, not be led by the flesh. And it's not legalistic. This takes the legal stuff all the way out of it. This is relationship. You're not just speaking a mantra to the wall. You're not trying to just do basic yoga exercises and speaking into nothingness. This is meditation 
and it is repetition, but you are speaking to the Lord heart to heart, and you're going to be shocked because he'll speak right back to you constantly. You're honing your spirit person to be able to sense God and to know when he's speaking to you. I'm almost done. We elevate what we worship. Real quick. Out of the abundance of the mouth, uh, pardon me, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another quick one. As a man thinks, so he is. We just, in fact, Devin quoted that passage, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is a picture of a life centered on Jesus Christ. This is a picture of a life that is focused on God. This is a picture of a life that elevates God first. And it's not done necessarily at an altar all the time, although this is a great place to begin. Okay, I'm done with that presentation. Here's what I want to share with you. Start. Start small. That's the reason I say it. Most of us, we hear one of these messages, we get our list, and we write it down, and we say, someday. Put it there below the list that says, clean out the garage someday. Build my wife her mansion someday. Build the swimming pool someday. As soon as I can get the hog out of the pond. We just, you know, we have these, all these lists. Don't let this go into the list. This is something we do. Start small. Start by breathing. Inspiration means, to inspire means to breathe in the breath of God. Expire means either to die or to breathe out the words of God. Which one you want, you choose. So, I would begin this way. If you know that you have, you're not walking with God the way you should, you have not elevated God, start now. Um, we have a great advantage in that anytime we need to, we can lay our cares at the feet of Jesus. Our failures, our fears, the hundredth time we've tried and failed again, our discouragement, our pain. We can take it all to Him. There's something very valuable. We are humans. That's why sometimes, some occasions, we need to mark it on a calendar that says, on this day, I decided to quit smoking. Or on this day, I decided that I would love my wife as I've never loved her before. On this day, I made a decision that I'm going to spend more time with my kids. Sometimes you need to put something on a calendar because we're people. That's why God even established the, the uh, seven festivals of Messiah, because he knew people. They needed anchors in their lives. Time goes by and we forget. God knows we forget. Our minds leak, our spirits leak. Today, if you know that you are not where you need to be in your relationship with God, stop trying to do all the rules and regulations and make everybody around you happy. You have one that you keep happy, one you spend time with. Elevate him. He will take care of the rest. He'll help everything else work out. But you've got to hook up to the power first. Let his power flow through you. Grace is what we all live on. That's the power. That's the 220 that flows through us is the power of grace, God's ability. For God is, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure.
We, hang, we need his help to do it. Let's stand.